Welcome to this episode of Rendezvous with the Expert. I'm Shobhna Rajan, staff anesthesiologist at the Cleveland Clinic, and on behalf of the Education Committee of the SNAC, we extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Laurie Lee, who will be our expert today and give us insight into anesthesia for spine surgery. Dr. Laurie Lee is currently professor in the Departments of Anesthesiology and Neurological Surgery and Chief of Neuroanesthesia at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Her research interests have focused on complications associated with surgery and anesthesia, especially after major spine surgery. She was asked to lead the ASA Postoperative Visual Loss Registry and also to join the ASA Closed Claims Project very early in her career. With the incredible support of senior SNAC members such as Dr. Stephen Roth, Michael Todd, Karen Domino, and Karen Posner, she also led the multi-center study for postoperative visual loss associated with major spine surgery. Her clinical experience at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, which is a level one trauma center and tertiary referral center for complex spinal fusion surgery, along with her research interests, have made her an expert in this area of anesthetic management of major spine surgery. Dr. Lee serves on the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation editorial board and is widely published. And there are so many more things to say about her, but I have to cut it short so as to proceed with the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Lee. Thank you, Shobana. That is a very kind and generous uh, introduction. I really appreciate it. So our first question to you is, what are the major preoperative considerations in a patient coming for a spinal instrumentation surgery? Well, uh, you know, that's a very uh, complex answer, and a lot of it is going to depend on what the procedure is exactly. Um, right. And um, <clears throat> since you say major, um, uh, I assume we're talking about major spinal surgery as well. And so um, those are considerable uh, things. One of the first things we want to know is how large is the patient because that drives a few of the other complications we see. They tend to get more venous congestion and edema, positioning injuries, pressure sores, and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. They also frequently have more associated comorbidities. Um, pain management is a big problem. Um, many, many of these patients are on chronic opioids and other uh, adjuncts, and so we need to make sure to continue those. The cardiopulmonary status for major spine surgery really needs to be able to tolerate a procedure where you're going to have perhaps more than a blood volume of uh, blood loss uh, in these cases. Um, and then uh, kidney function is something that can also be uh, impaired in these uh, because of the large fluid shifts uh, primarily. Um, so um, delirium is another thing. If the patients are elderly, they're going to be more at risk for this. Um, and uh, so we have to think about all of these things. The um, big thing we want to be prepared for is blood loss. So uh, we really want to be uh, having very good uh, venous access, whether that's large bore peripheral IVs or central lines, as well as an arterial line to really look at our pulse pressure variation, as well as monitor our uh, frequent labs, such as our hematocrit and uh, coagulation parameters. Right, so many, many considerations. Like you said, many of these patients are already on multiple chronic pain medications preoperatively, making it very difficult for us to manage them in the perioperative period. Can you make some recommendations on some potential approaches for management? Uh, sure. Um, so the uh, 
subject of Suboxone is something that uh, I believe the one of the SNAC panels covered last year at last year's meeting, which was some really thoughtful regimens people had when a patient on Suboxone comes to you um, before you have any time for preparation or for weaning them. I'm not going to go into that right now because that's very complex. Um, what I'm going to discuss is the more common situation where they're on high-dose chronic opioids and perhaps a lot of other peripheral adjuncts. And so in those patients, um, they, uh, it's frequently useful to have them seen by a pain physician um, uh, preoperatively, maybe a month ahead of time. And many of these patients, uh, what they find useful is to actually wean their opioids down a bit. Um, mm -hmm. And most patients tolerate that pretty well, actually. Um, and then uh, start them on some gabapentin uh, and get them up to a reasonable dose, say 300 or more TID. Um, and then preoperatively, um, we want to give them that uh, as well, uh, perhaps even some additional gabapentin or pregabalin would also be fine. Um, sure. And then the use of other adjuncts during the procedure, such as ketamine, uh, lidocaine, uh, have been somewhat useful. The lidocaine hasn't always... Uh, been shown to reduce opioid requirements, but uh, many people believe it's somewhat helpful. The um, use of uh, fentanyl and infusion is also uh, helpful for these patients uh, because you have less up and downs as opposed to the bolus technique. And then some people also recommend using some methadone up front just to smooth everything out as well. Um, mm -hmm. These things I've mentioned, um, there's much literature on. Uh, the head of our pain, former head of our pain service at Vanderbilt University, Dr. Mark Contoon, um, actually devised this regimen in conjunction with uh, the surgeons and uh, also with anesthesia in terms of what we'd be using, uh, but came up with a very good management plan for these patients. They then continue on the gabapentin postoperatively and are weaned off of it if, if uh, possible. Sure, thanks. Now, this question is about positioning. What are the precautions to be taken with respect to prone positioning of the patient for such a prolonged surgery? Well, um, mostly what we're uh, concerned about are the airway, um, the eyes, uh, and uh, the joints, the, the uh, skin. Uh, and so all of those things can be impacted as well as uh, getting high intra-abdominal pressures, particularly when you have a very large abdominal girth uh, when you're prone. That can really make everything a little worse because it'll increase your CVP and the pressure in your head as well, causing more uh, venous bleeding also. So um, uh, what we think about is making sure first that the airway is secure, uh, that there are bite blocks in uh, to protect the tongue from the mm -hmm. teeth coming together when they're prone. Also, if you're doing motor evoked potentials, you want a very secure block between the molars there to keep the tongue from being bitten. Um, the uh, other thing we want is a headrest. Uh, Mayfield pens are always lovely when we can use those, but uh, many of the cases don't require that, and so we'll use a soft cushion that has cutouts for the eyes, the nose, and the ears, and mm -hmm. uh, will allow uh, those to be pressure-free. Of course, they require checks throughout the case because the body gets jostled a bit uh, during these surgeries and also the positioning of the slight movements of the body as well. 
Um, we then do also like to pad up uh, big pressure point areas such as the forehead, the chin, the chest, the hips, uh, and the knees. Uh, with We use Mephilex at Vanderbilt, and um, it's very good, very helpful, and uh, it does minimize the pressure source. Certainly, we don't get zero, but we get far less than we used to. Um, Got to be careful about the tape job also around the breathing tube because that can tear the skin off when these patients get edematous and they're older. You have to be very gentle about that. Um, and then uh, make sure on the Jackson frame in particular that that uh, upper bar is not too close to the neck, causing worsening the venous congestion that you might have. Um, sure. And, and then... Uh, for positioning of the arms, making sure they're less than 90 degrees at the joint, usually in the semi-divers position, unless you're going cervical, in which case they'll be tucked. One of the bigger areas where we can get uh, nerve injury is actually when they pull the arms down for these cervical procedures, and, and uh, it can actually cause a brachial plexus injury. So the SSCPs are quite mm -hmm. useful for that and detecting that. And so uh, that's also something very helpful. Sure. Now, if the surgeon is considering intraoperative evopotential monitoring, what limitations does this impose on our choice of anesthetic agent? Can you briefly summarize what agents may be used without interfering with such monitoring? Well, um, I'm not the expert in this area, and we have workshops, I think, just about every year to discuss that at our annual SNAC meeting, which is something everyone should consider taking advantage of. I'll yeah. briefly summarize it, but it's much more complex than what I'm going to discuss. Uh, for EMG monitoring, it's just no muscle relaxant after uh, they've exposed and they're actually utilizing the EMG. Uh, for the um, SACPs, um, many places uh, will do 0.5 MAC as their upper limit on the volatile. Others will go up to 1. In my experience, 1 has been fine. Unless they have marginal SACPs and they really need them, in which case, obviously, TIVA is going to give you better signal. So, um, in general, you can, uh, for a normal patient, you could uh, utilize up to a max of volatile. Um, however, a lot of this is going to depend on this variability on how willing your EP service is, depending on who's running it, uh, is to um, manage these cases individually versus as a blanket protocol. Um, and so, some centers, they may not have a very good... Um, or close relationship with the person actually monitoring the EPs, in which case you're more likely to have a protocol that says you can only go to 0.5 mac of volatile and none on the motors. Whereas others, particularly when anesthesia runs them um, or they're on site, you can frequently have a discussion about particular patients and manage them on an individual basis. Uh, it's true, propofol will give you the best signal um, uh, compared to volatile on your SSCPs and certainly your motors, but it's not the only option. And um, on motors, uh, you can run DES, you can run uh, SIVO in neuro-impact patients and still get very uh, good signals able to be monitored. If you have some specific concerns, though, you have weak signals, then you probably propofol is going to be your best option there. The um, the thing is, is when you uh, do something other than propofol or more than 0.5 max, uh, say, for instance, on your steps or propofol for your motors, then you need to have a close contact with your EP technician 
to make sure that what you're doing is not impairing their signal, that they're actually able to monitor that patient throughout the procedure. And so you do need to have more of a back and forth if you do something um, that might cause a problem with the anesthetic. And because of that, um, some people just prefer to go to, to keep it very conservative and to not go over 0.5 max volatile on the steps and to only use propofol for the motors. Um, but obviously, as anesthesiologists, we frequently uh, prefer using volatile more often. Um, so it really depends on your institution and what your setup is with your EP technicians. Sure. Dr. Lee, we all know that you've worked extensively on postoperative visual loss. Can you tell us how common this is after spine surgery and what are the risk factors? Um, well, first of all, um, before I forget, um, I'd like to say that uh, the bulk of this research was only made possible through the dedication and donation of academic time uh, by numerous people in the SNAC Society. And that's a wonderful thing about our society is that we have uh, produced um, several uh, very high-quality studies. Uh, Mike Todd, of course, was involved in this one as well as the ICAST study. And that's one of the benefits of being in SNAC and being able to participate in things like this. Um, as you know, there were 17 centers that came together to uh, produce the case control study uh, where we found 80 patients in the ASA postoperative visual loss registry and compared them to almost four patients each uh, on a one-to-four case control uh, matching uh, for patients to look at risk factors. So not your ideal study, not, an R not as powerful as an RCT by any means. Um, but it, you can't really do an RCP when your outcome metric is postoperative visual loss. Uh, might be hard to get through your ethics board, perhaps. So um, what uh, we found in that study is that there were six risk factors, and those were male sex and obesity, uh, neither of which you can do much about preoperatively. The um, anesthetic duration, which was really just a surrogate for surgical duration and time in the prone position, but that's where we had the strongest uh, uh, data was anesthetic time because that's what we build up. Um, and then uh, the blood loss uh, were also significant factors. The, those can be modified somewhat. Uh, the use of the Wilson frame can be modified, but obviously you have to convince your surgeon of that. And so that may be, take some time to get them to come around. I think uh, from what I've seen and when I've spoken to many surgeons around the country that um, most of them do not prefer to do their fusions, particularly their big fusions on the Wilson frame. There's just a few of those surgeons uh, around that do. Um, and certainly if you have a discussion with them about uh, the study, the concerns, the uh, proposed etiology of this problem, I think most of them are willing to make some accommodation to get the head neutral with the heart, perhaps not causing that Wilson frame to have such a uh, bow in it is one of the things that I've seen. Um, and then others have just gone only to the Jackson for the most part. Um, mm -hmm. The fluid uh, administration, colloid versus crystalloid, uh, colloid was found to be a little protective, but it's certainly not going to prevent the, com the complication on its own. There are cases that have had up to two liters of uh, colloid use, albumin, and the patient still developed it. So if you just have a massive resuscitation, the use of colloid is impossible for us to say from our data how much that will help prevent it. 
Um, and its odds ratio is closer to two, so it's not like the Wilson frame where that odds ratio was four, which was our strongest risk factor. Um, and so there's still some debate on this, I think. Um, again, it's a case control study. Even when you have randomized uh, controlled trials, uh, you still see things change. We have the beta blockers and the tight insulin control that came out as these great RCTs, and now we've backed off from them. And so clinical medicine evolves as we get more studies, and um, it'd be great to see some more studies on this, but it's a really difficult problem to study because of the rarity of its occurrence. And with our the study that Steve Roth led from the University of Illinois recently in anesthesiology, um, we have found that at least by the NIS data of the nationwide inpatient sample that the rate of postoperative visual loss seems to be decreasing uh, with ION and spine, mm. spinal fusion surgery. So that's good news. It's possible, we can't prove it, of course, but it's possible that all of our efforts through SNAC and through the ASA and through APSF are actually starting to pay off um, through education mm. of both anesthesiologists and surgeons and uh, perhaps consenting more uh, and just being more aware of the problem. So I think that's a real um, success story for us. Um, again, we can't prove it, but we'll certainly uh, take advantage of it. Um, anything else you wanted to know about that particular topic? Uh, I was wondering whether you would discuss the risk of visual loss with the patient during the preoperative interview. Um, I do, and this is a uh, controversial area because some people feel it's not really true consent 10 minutes before you go back to the operating room. Um, it is the way anesthesia preoperative clinics are run nowadays with not everyone seen preoperatively and uh, many times a physician not seeing the patient preoperatively but a well-trained RN or advanced practice nurse, um, you, you don't, oh, the patient doesn't always have the ability to speak with an anesthesiologist, and not every mm -hmm. surgeon uh, chooses to consent. Um, I've seen surgeons that always consent, and I've seen surgeons that refuse to ever consent uh, for this particular risk mm -hmm. factor. So um, yeah. I do check with the patients preoperatively, and I do inform them of it. I'm very careful in how I do that. I want them to be informed, but I don't. But I want them to be appropriately informed um, because it's a very low risk um, and getting lower as far as we can see. And um, I do. I am careful to point out that um, at least with what we know, we try to uh, use every preventative measure possible, um, at least from the anesthesia side, you know, in terms of the fluids um, and things. And so. Um, uh, I do try to appropriately um, modify what I say to them based on who they are and what they're having done. Um, I've never had a patient cancel, although some surgeons have told me that patients have canceled after they told them that, but this is shared decision-making, and I think we really do need to be forthright with patients about what our risks are involved with these procedures. Sure. That gives us a lot of clarity on this. And our next question is about blood loss, which can be extensive in these patients. So uh, what blood conservation techniques do you normally use? Well, um, I think perhaps the most powerful uh, blood conservation technique is uh, if you were able to choose your surgeon, of course. Um, and uh, I think um, 
Uh, next to that would be the number of levels perhaps they're doing. But, right. <laughs> uh, sometimes you don't get those choices, particularly as anesthesiologists. Right. Um, yes. And so uh, then we go with things like antithargrenolytics, like uh, aminocaproic acid and tranexamic acid. And um, these are somewhat helpful. Most studies show about a 500 to 1 liter benefit in using these things. Um, mm -hmm. A protein was even more effective, but of course it had huge downsides and so not really used much now. And so um, I think those two things are helpful. Again, surgical techniques, yeah. they also have a lot more products out there, topical agents, uh, hemostatic agents that can be helpful. Some people advocate the use of deliberate hypotension. Sorry, what were you saying? Mm -hmm. uh, that that was what I was actually asking you about deliberate hypotension, but you brought it up already. Ah, yes, and uh, that's incredibly controversial, and there's no wonderful data to demonstrate that um, that's uh, terribly effective, at least in terms of time. There are several uh, sort of case series uh, out there showing that um, uh, that patients have changes in their potentials when delivered hypotension is used and that the potentials return to normal when they raise the pressure. Um, some, unfortunately, sometimes the conclusions in those articles are that delivered hypotension is safe. Um, however, <laughs> my interpretation would be that delivered hypotension is a very risky business for the spinal cord mm -hmm. and the peripheral right. nerves, which the whole reason we're there to help the patient right. and protect them. And mm -hmm. so um, I'm not an advocate of that. I do know it's uh, widely used still in pediatric uh, scoliosis corrections. And um, mm. so I would probably get a pediatric neuroanesthesiologist to comment on their experience with that. Um, but certainly sure. in the adult world where we have so many more uh, comorbidities, um, it's not typically something uh, that we use for the most part. I think it's r largely gone out of favor for the most part for these bigger mm -hmm. spine surgeries. Sure. Thank you. Uh, well, our, our next question is, like, we do know that these cases can go on for a very long time. What would be your extubation strategy? When would you decide whether to ventilate rather than extubate a patient? Well, um, those are always good questions. I think uh, one of the big things you have to consider is where are they operating? Um, you know, are they doing a multi-level anterior cervical procedure uh, where there's known to be swelling and complications, which can, can frequently occur one to two days after they're extubated? Um, oh. Is it um, a large prone procedure where uh, they were large, have sleep apnea, somewhat difficult to ventilate, challenging intubation? Is that the person you want to send up you know, with their face maybe one and a half times what it used to be, maybe not. So right. I think you have to look at all of those things, um, decide what your floor monitoring is like, where's the patient going to be, and decide whether or not you think it's safe to intubate, extubate. What time of the day is it? Is this going to be late at night, at 9 o'clock, um, mm -hmm. you know, where you have less resources available, perhaps less monitoring going on, checking the patient right. uh, on the floor. And so... Um, uh, on a more specific level, I think a lot of people uh, use a cuff leak test where they will deflate the cuff and see if air can move around the breathing tube, particularly spontaneously. And then mm -hmm. um, I think just looking at the neck, particularly, you know, just feeling it around the glottis and having a baseline comparison when you saw the patient beforehand 
um, and knowing how tight and swollen they might feel in that area uh, might also be a, you know, a very soft uh, clinical um, skill that you could uh, hone for this particular issue. But um, there's no foolproof way. Again, a lot of that is because um, there's so much swelling that can go on postoperatively, particularly when they've operated in that area. Right. I was wondering, do you think there's a role for steroids like Decadrone to prevent airway edema? Well, I know the uh, otolaryngologists are particularly big advocates of that, and uh, most of the spine surgeons that do ACDS do like that. I think um, mm-hmm. not only for the nerves, but also for the tissue swelling there. I think they uh, do believe that it's somewhat helpful. There's not um, great studies on that. There's some, but... Uh, I think it's certainly something that has been ingrained in the practice uh, that people use. And so, you know, uh, most patients can tolerate one dose of Decadron without uh, major disruptions. I think there was a study in anesthesiology showing that that um, wasn't a major problem even for diabetics if they just got the one dose. So um, I think most people do tend to use that if they're concerned about airway swelling. So this brings us to the end of the podcast, and thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Lee, and I'm sure that this podcast is going to be very useful to everyone of us who are going to listen to it. Well, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time uh, to further um, the whole snack community's uh, uh, education on topics like this, and also just to have a discussion. I it'd be great if we could have an open discussion because I think there's other experiences that everyone can contribute to. Um, and so I think it's just a wonderful endeavor that SNAC has made in the recent uh, years. Thank you so much. Thank you.